Welcome to you if you're visiting this morning. Uh, you've come at a quite a significant point because uh, this is our second to last message on the book of Revelation, uh, number 34. So we've been working our way through this book uh, for most of this year and uh, there's just one more message to go next week. But this is the the concluding words of the final of the seven visions in the book of Revelation. I trust that you saw the obvious parallels between that reading from Ezekiel 47 and this one from Revelation 22. The Bible begins and ends with a garden, a tree, a meal and a river. In Genesis, it's Eden, the garden, full of food, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and a river watering the whole earth. Genesis 2, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. And then he goes on to to name the four rivers. But this is an unusual river because it splits into four rivers. Normally, rivers join But this one divides so that the waters might reach the four corners of the earth. Now, some people have wasted countless hours trying to use these four rivers to try and locate Eden. And I say wasted because, firstly, we know that the course of rivers change over time. It's virtually impossible to locate all of these rivers. But secondly, because the point of This is not to help find Eden on the map, but to show how the life of that garden flowed out into the whole earth. And a picture of how human beings who were in the garden were also to go out, fill the earth and be mediators of God's life-giving holiness and glory to all of creation. As they went out, They would take the reality of what they knew in Eden, the life-giving presence of God. The tree of life wasn't a a single magical tree with special powers to give immortality. That, That was a mythical idea that the other nations around Israel had in their religious stories. They told of heroes' quests to go and try and find this tree of life, so that they could eat and become immortal. The book of Genesis cuts across all of those uh, mythological views. It presents God himself as the only true source of life. And he generously filled creation with an abundance of beautiful, nutritious, delicious food and then he designed us so that our physical life is to be sustained by partaking of all of the goodness of that which God has made. So that's the tree of life. 
Similarly, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil didn't have special powers. It was actually God's command attached to that tree that gave them the knowledge of what was good, obey God and live, and what was evil, disobey God and die. Of course, everything changed with the entry of sin and death into the world through Adam. Adam and Eve were supposed to have a meal with God, with all the abundant food that he'd given them. Instead, they sat down and they had a meal with the devil. The ground was cursed, it lost its fruitfulness and Adam had to work the ground, toiling for food. He was expelled from Eden. He lost access to the life-giving abundance of God's garden and the tree of life. So under the curse of sin now, plants have lost their value to maintain our life forever. The best nutrition might extend our lives a few years or decades, but they can't stop that creep of death. They can't stop us from returning to the dust. Then in the Bible's unfolding story, we see something very interesting The story of Abraham starts with God calling him to leave his homeland in the thriving civilization of Ur, located on the banks of the mighty river Euphrates. And he's told to go, to leave that river and to go to the land that God would show him. It turned out to be Canaan. It's a land that has a small river, Jordan, on its border but it has no great river flowing through it. Then, in Exodus, Israel is called to leave the thriving civilization of Egypt, located on the great banks of the river Nile, to journey through the desert to settle in this land of Canaan. Then, in an ironic twist, centuries later, They were taken into exile and ended up back in the land that their father Abraham came from by the rivers of Babylon, but only for 70 years before they were returned to the promised land. God could have made Abraham prosper in Ur. He could have made him rise up to be a king in the land of the great river Euphrates. He could have made the Israelites so strong and powerful that they could take over the land of Egypt and become a great nation on the banks of the River Nile or to conquer the Babylonians when they were in exile and take over that fertile land of Babylonia. But he didn't. He kept taking his people away from great rivers and planting them in the land of Canaan for a very good reason. As Israel was preparing to enter the land after 40 years of wandering, Moses told them, the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. 
The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Great human civilizations have grown up around rivers, thinking that it was the rivers that gave them their life to the point that some of them even worship the rivers as gods. Well, Israel was to live in a land where they were completely dependent upon God, the true God, to provide water from the sky. They were to learn that he is the true source of life, the true fountain of living waters, that which the river of Eden and the river of the New Jerusalem symbolise. So in Ezekiel's vision, uh, which we looked at briefly last week, that whole vision from 40 to 48, there's a river. And this river is even stranger and more miraculous than Eden's river. And it's that river that we heard read this morning that John wants us to visualise when he says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. So we heard that full account of Ezekiel's river, a vision given for the people as they sat in captivity by the rivers of Babylon. Back in 2017, not many of you were here back in 2017, but we did a short series on Ezekiel and at that time I asked a friend of mine who's a cartoonist to help us picture what Ezekiel saw. So Ezekiel notices water flowing out from the southern base of the Holy of Holies in the temple. Taken outside the temple complex, Ezekiel sees the water coming from the southern side and flowing east. This time he describes it literally as gurgling out. It's uh, it's a flow that's gained momentum. This trickle turns into a great river within a couple of kilometres. It's a miraculous river. It's not fed by tributaries. Instead of fanning out and losing depth like we expect, it becomes deeper as it flows. This river is life-giving. Trees have sprung up on its banks in abundance, in contrast to the sparse, scrubby countryside that would have been typical in the area at the time. Now, where's this river flowing? Miraculously, it manages to cross several mountain ridges and valleys and go all the way to the Dead Sea. And the river transforms the waters of the Dead Sea into a place of abundant life and its shores all around are full of fishermen catching an abundance of fish. We're told that the swamps and marshes remain salty, providing people with a source of salt. But possibly also it's there as a constant reminder of what the Dead Sea once was like, so that people would never forget that what they have is because of the transforming power of this great river. And then finally we were brought back to a vision of life along the banks of this river, where the trees are providing a constant supply of food and the leaves a constant 
supply of healing and health, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. Now, I don't think we should expect a literal fulfilment in terms of the change of the topography of the land of Israel, but we're to see the spiritual truths conveyed here in Ezekiel's vision and in what John sees in our passage. Jerusalem, the people of God, dwelling in the presence of God, with God dwelling among them, and through them the life of God flowing out and renewing and sustaining the whole of the creation. In the temple in Jerusalem, when the priests offered the sacrifices, they sprinkled some of the blood on the altar and the rest of it was poured out on the ground. So, in the design of the altar, there was a channel around the base connected to a drain that led into another drain with flowing water that would take the blood out of the temple and down the hill into the valley. Obviously, this water then flowing from the temple would be tainted with blood and it was considered unclean because of that blood. This is what John sees, but it's been transformed. Firstly, the water, he says, is bright as crystal, as we would say, crystal clear, pure and fresh, clean, drinkable, life-giving. This is because it's not flowing from the altar, because there's no altar in this city. There's no need for an altar or sacrifices because they've all been done away with by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. No more blood needs to be shed because his blood has atoned for all of our sins. No, this water is flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. The flow of the water isn't with the purpose of carrying away the blood-stained, unclean water, carrying away our sins, but in order to make the life-giving water of God available to all who come and drink. See how the root of this flow is different. Instead of being taken out, out of sight, under the southern wall, it's flowing down the middle of the main street where it's available to all who come in through the gates of the city. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, when Israel uh, remember their time in the wilderness, they commemorate when the Lord gave them water from the rock. And the altar would be doused with water mixed with wine. And this would flush out and cleanse that drain and cause a sudden flow down the hill. Now early in his ministry, Jesus attended this feast and it was at that point when he stood up and he interrupted the proceedings. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we see that not only this day of the feast, but also the original experience of water flowing from the rock, all pointed forward to Jesus, the true source of living water. And we see that this 
Living water flows from his heart to all who believe in him. It's not literal water though, it's the person of the Holy Spirit himself sent by Jesus to give us the truth and the reality of the Father and the Son to dwell in us. That's why this New Jerusalem River is flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So I must ask you, have you come and drunk at the spring of living water? Have the blood-red defiling stains of your sin been washed away by the blood of Jesus at the cross and by the water of the Spirit poured out at Pentecost? Has the thirst of your soul been quenched and has your heart been satisfied by the life he freely gives without cost, without you needing to earn it or be worthy of it. Hebrews 10.22 tells us that anyone who has simple faith in Jesus may draw near to God in full assurance of faith with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. See how the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus deal with both the physical and the spiritual. Our sin is removed not just as a fact, but as a fact that we know and experience. Our consciences have been cleared because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And our bodies are washed, meaning the uncleanness of our sin is gone. Our bodies are now holy, a temple of the Holy Spirit, fit and suitable to be used as a living sacrifice in serving God. And because our bodies are holy, we can have confidence that on the last day they will be raised up by Jesus at the resurrection. Back to the vision. There's no room for vehicles on this street because not only is the river running down the middle, but along the sides of the river is the tree of life. Not just a single tree, but a forest, fruiting every month and producing 12 kinds of fruit. Remember the trees in Eden? Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God provided everything the man and woman needed, not only to sustain their lives, but to enjoy, to enjoy eating But this tree of life is a new version because not only does it provide food but its leaves provide healing. Leaves were used in biblical times as they often are today still for medicinal purposes but this is healing of a different kind. It's the nations that are healed. means the raging of the nations has ceased Their hostility is ended. Everything that causes nation to rise up against nation has been abolished. It's not that the differences in culture and language and custom have been abolished, but instead of seeing these differences as a reason to divide and hate, they're seen as an expression of the goodness and glory of God. There's a rabbi in the US called Michael Latz. He's a uh, 
progressive Jew, I think, liberal, but he said recently in response to the conflict in Israel, my hope is that one day the children of Isaac, the Jews, and the children of Ishmael, the Muslims, will come together and tell the extremists to go take a hike so we can eat hummus and dates and watch our children frolic together. The problem is, it's not just the extremists that are the problem. The cause of conflict isn't different ideas and cultures and appearances. They're just the external things that we use as excuses. The problem lies in the human heart. The dynamic that brings about international warfare is the same dynamic that causes interpersonal conflict. The division of the nations, between nations, is just a corporate expression of individual pride. We must recognise that within each person, each one of us, apart from the grace of God, is the capacity to be a Hamas terrorist, given the right influence and the right opportunity. The only way to stop this natural trajectory of the human heart is to have it ripped out and replaced with a new heart. And that only happens by being crucified with Christ and raised with him so that we no longer live, but he lives in us. Do you think that you're in less need of the grace of God and a new heart than a terrorist? If so, it's not grace you're depending on, it's merit. The moment you see yourself as more deserving of God's favour than someone else simply because they express their sinfulness in a different or more extreme way than you, then you're actually minimising, not maximising the grace of God. We must all say with Paul, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So, Rabbi Latz, the only way that the children of Ishmael and the children of Isaac will sit and eat dates and hummus together is when the children of Isaac recognise Jesus as the true Messiah promised to their fathers and when the children of Ishmael acknowledge that Jesus is more than a prophet and bow before him as the Son of God and then both can come together to have their sins washed away in the river of life and all of their hostility and hatred healed by the leaves of the tree of life. We should pray for political and military peace in the Middle East, absolutely. But even more, we should be praying and sending and going with the Gospel so that the only message that can bring eternal peace might be proclaimed and believed by Jews and Arabs and by the whole world. Well, this Eden imagery continues in verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse of death and futility, of pain and toil that came from Adam's sin 
is reversed. The serpent, the first to be caught, to be cursed by God, has been cast out, and the promise that was embedded in his curse has come to pass. The offspring of the woman will crush your head, and you will bruise, and he will, you will bruise his heel. Eve's offspring, Jesus, his heel was bruised when he used it to crush the devil's head. So the serpent's out, never to return, but the man and woman are back in. Not, not Adam and his wife Eve, not the first Adam, but the last Adam and his bride, the church. Adam was cursed and in in him we were all cursed. But Jesus became a curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of God and be blessed. And more priestly language, his servants will worship him, describing the priests performing their duties in the temple. They will see his face because the veil has been taken away from the holy place and his name will be on their foreheads. We saw last week the high priest with his 12 precious stones on his breastplate representing the 12 tribes. He also had on his forehead, the front of his turban, a pure gold plate inscribed with Holy to the Lord. As the mediator between God and man, his clothes were a symbol of God and humanity coming together, reconciled, living in peace in this one man. So there's a picture of God's people, us, living as a priestly people. And we've already heard it, but it's repeated again. There's no night in this temple city, in this garden temple city. In the old temple, activities would commence with the morning sacrifice and then finish with the evening sacrifice and the priests would go home to bed. In this temple of God's people, the worship continues without stopping. As a child, I thought this meant that we would be sitting in church services for all eternity And I wasn't that impressed because I found church boring. But we know that worship isn't just performing religious duties. It's giving our whole selves, body and soul, to live for the glory of God. In the new creation, every single thing we do, like a bit of fruit from the tree of life, an act of worship. So if that's the case, start getting ready now. Strive to make all that you do now an act of worship by loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbour as yourself so that in all things Jesus might be honoured through your life. Remember, we come to Jesus not merely to be saved from sin and death and the devil. We also come to him to be raised up, to be seated with him and to be commissioned by him restored to this true human vocation as a kingdom of priests. It's important for us to see how in the final words of this final vision, 
we are described as this royal priesthood, serving God in his presence and reigning forever. That's what we are. That's who you are in Christ. So the Bible, as it began, so it ends. There's a garden. In fact, a garden city full of life and the abundance of God's beauty and provision. There's the tree of life, restored, accessible, free to all who would come and eat. And there's the river, the life of God himself, flowing to all who would come and drink. And there's a meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride. God and human beings sitting together at table in full fellowship, full joy.